This conference is all about bringing together that powerful triumvirate, people, capital, and ideas. In 2015, the Paris Climate Accords set the target of limiting global warming to well below two degrees. To reduce the disastrous effects of climate change, we need a whole economy approach. Business, government, and finance working together, taking swift action to reduce emissions, supporting and championing the innovators in cleantech, promoting leadership that sees decarbonization as an opportunity, an opportunity for innovation, an opportunity for global collaboration, an opportunity to build a better world for the future generation. The people here today, the people driving this change. Welcome to Innovation Zero. Our next panel is the eagerly anticipated hydrogen debate. So in the UK, I like to think we're technology agnostic with hydrogen, blue versus green, and market forces will determine the, the production mix by the end of the decade. So we've got great natural advantages to become world leaders in both technologies. And it's great to see both blue and green hydrogen represented um, on the panel today. So I want to start by introducing our moderator, Kofi Buck. Moderator, he's the lead clean tech researcher from the Carbon Tracker Initiative. He's held a wide range of experience across the renewable energy investments, 10 years of experience in the climate change sector, and he co-founded an award-winning spin-out from Imperial College London. He holds a PhD from Imperial College London in Renewable Energy Investments. Um, I'd like to hand over to Kofi. We're in good hands today for the debate. Okay, thanks. Thank you Kofi. so much. That, that was an amazing introduction. Thank you so much for that. Well, welcome to the hydrogen debate today. Well, as he said, my name is Kofi Book. I am the senior clean tech analyst at Carbon Tracker, and I'll be your trusted moderator today. Now, we have some exciting lineup today, and we are going to answer a lot of questions around hydrogen as a whole. But I want to make some background information about the sector. Now, hydrogen has been tapped as the lifeblood of the renewable energy future. Its development could allow for the storage and delivery of renewable energy. But is hydrogen just a pipe dream? Can it be scaled up to meet net zero target? And most importantly, what is the role of green hydrogen in our energy transition? Well, today with me, we have a lovely panelist. So we have uh, Celia Greaves, CEO, CEO Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association, Dr. Yeah, just take a seat. Dr. Eugene McKenna, Managing Director of Johnson Mate. Dr. Peter Williams, CTO and Head of Investor Relations Ineos Group, Ilyas El Farley, Managing Director, Corporate Strategy, Sustainability and Innovation, OCP Group, and Amin Hussam, Vice President, Hydrogen Solution, InnovX, part of the OCP Group. Now, thanks so much for joining me on stage today, and I just wanted, let's go straight to it. Uh, Celia, I have a question for you. So why is the Global North particularly interested in scaling up green hydrogen and what challenges will they face? Thank you for the opportunity to answer that question. And just by way of introduction, I should say that we were the UK Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association until yesterday. And we're now the Hydrogen Energy Association. So we've changed our name to reflect the really broad church of our membership and coverage 
covering the whole hydrogen value chain. So moving on to the question, interest in the, the Global North. So as a UK trade association, I'll be particularly focused on the UK and all my answers. Suffice to say, I think there's a number of drivers here. First of all, the strong momentum to get to net zero and then building on that a growing and widespread recognition of the role that hydrogen can play, low carbon hydrogen, I should say, in getting us to net zero. So, for example, in the UK, we've got a, a vision whereby our 2050 net zero target involves over 35% of low carbon hydrogen to deliver that. So we've got a huge journey to go on to uh, get us to there. I think in terms of green or electrolysis-based hydrogen, is that really strong fit with renewables? So renewables growing, renewables seen as having a really important role, obviously zero carbon. And there's such a great fit with hydrogen because of the, the role that hydrogen can play in addressing energy resilience, making sure that our renewable assets function that much more effectively than they would otherwise. And then that then feeds into some of the other factors around uh, the wider geopolitical uncertainties that we're seeing with the war in Ukraine, whereby ourselves and our, our nearby neighbours are all looking to enhance their energy resilience, improve independence and hydrogen, low carbon hydrogen gives us the opportunity to do that. In terms of the challenges, obviously the, the key one there is to is for us to be competitive with our green hydrogen. So that's around cost down, scale up, supply chains, number of different factors that will come into play. Obviously, there's a really important role for both public and private sector investment and policy frameworks around that. And I think for us, within that mix, there's that whole question of, of make or buy. So as a UK-based leading UK trade, trade association in the space, we're really keen to support our member companies and the industry at large to grow hydrogen projects based on hydrogen technology within the UK and deliver that to UK-based technology users and solutions within the UK, and then also expand that out into exports and, and build clean growth through those solutions as well. So that's a really important thread within this for, for us as a trade association. We want to see the UK building on the fantastic technology solutions that we have that can deliver these low-carbon solutions. Thank you so much. And I think that's a very, very interesting point. Being competitive is, is extremely crucial for the sector. Uh, we know that the, the US, they introduced the IRA scheme sometime last year, basically to make their hydrogen market extremely competitive. So Eugene, on, on this topic of being competitive, right here in Europe, there seems to be a huge disconnect between investors, policymakers, and hydrogen manufacturers. Uh, Jonathan Matey, obviously, you innovate very, very great products in the hydrogen space. Wouldn't you agree that in order for you to keep your innovation costs low, uh, you have to collaborate hand in hand with policymakers to ensure that your cost of innovations are low so you don't push on that cost uh, to the end user? And what sorts of incentives uh, would you want to be introduced to help drive your cost low ultimately? So uh, Johnson Matthew makes the critical components at the heart of PEM electrolyzers that make uh, well, make green hydrogen. It's one of the technologies for making green hydrogen. Similar components go into fuel cells for using that uh, hydrogen, as well as just having some blue hydrogen technology as well. I think there are many models around the world that we can now see clearly working for how you get policy to work and how you can. I, I mean, the challenge in, um, in the hydrogen ecosystem is that we need to incentivize the production of hydrogen, the transport and storage of hydrogen, and the use of hydrogen all at the same time. 
anybody investing in any one of those areas, the risk is that the others don't happen at the same pace. This is where policy is really important to encourage these things to happen all at the same time. You can clearly see in America what happens when it all gets joined up together, which is driving the huge investment in green technology in America at the moment. They're the uh, policy is both generous financially and it's also very good at decluttering the regulation associated with making investments. In Europe, things are uh, a slightly less generous but a little bit complicated. And finally, in the UK, it's both not generous and complicated. So I, I think it's clear what we need to do if we want to boost, uh, boost those things here. With, with regard to making our innovation competitive, uh, to be honest, we invest about a quarter of a billion dollars a year in uh, R&D, mainly in the UK. That flows through into better products that are lower total cost of ownership. Um, and uh, I, I think uh, policies, of course, to subsidize that are always welcome. Um, but it, that's not really where we're looking for uh, assistance. We're really looking for the policy support for our products so that they're deployed in the marketplace. Perfect. Thank you so much, Eugene. And Peter, um a quick question for you. Over at INEOS, you have a, a very strong exposure in blue hydrogen CCUS assets. Are you worried about stranded asset risk as policy continues to turn its back against um, long-term blue hydrogen um, CCUS deployments? No, I, I don't think we're worried about stranded assets at the moment. I think we're more worried about getting assets moving for the reasons that Eugene just described, where the regulatory environment uh, the policy environment in the UK particularly is, is really not sufficiently coherent and, and therefore is providing impediments, I think, to rapid development. And, and let's, let's also be clear that the, uh, you know, there's some excellent technology. Technology will develop, but the industrialization of hydrogen is, is difficult and expensive. Well, I think we know how to do it, but it is difficult and expensive. In, in EOS, we're investing in green hydrogen across Europe and North America as well. We're looking at a number of projects there. And as you know, we're also looking at uh, carbon capture-based projects around, let's say, the North Sea gas field coastline, uh, for, for want of a better description. And, uh, and we understand what's, I think, required to scale up those technologies and to make it industrial. And a lot of the cost is in that industrialization, but it really needs infrastructure and policy to come alongside it. So we're not worried about stranded assets at the moment. We just want to get things moving in the UK. And frankly, I think at the moment, the UK is falling behind. We'd like to see a more urgent and uh, more coherent set of policies and regulatory support. One example, we already make a lot of hydrogen in the UK. It's low carbon hydrogen. It doesn't qualify. It's, it's not really accepted in a lot of policy circles as a low carbon hydrogen. So we make you know, several tens of thousand tons at the moment, more than that actually in the UK. We make 400,000 tons uh, across our operations already. A lot of that is from electrolysis. We understand the electrolysis process. That can be adapted to hydrogen electrolysis. We know how to do that. We're doing that. But the impediment is not really there at this stage. But yeah, I think there's a growing theme here. And we all talk about policies and introducing policies. But what sorts of policies would you like to introduce well, in the sector? Well, for example, I, I think the IRA actually is a good example for a couple of reasons. One, it's very clear and simple. Yes, it, it's, it's federal, but it's, it's very clear and simple. It does not introduce the complication of color. 
Do we care whether it's green hydrogen or blue hydrogen, or do we care about the carbon content, is the view the US has taken. The view the US has taken is it cares about, it cares about the carbon content. And the incentives are based upon a sliding scale of that nature, and the tangible and significant incentives, and they last for a finite period of time. So it provides the perfect environment, not perfect, but it provides a good, good example right. of an environment that can encourage investment, the policy remains in place, and then after five, ten years in the US, we'll see where the US industry has got to. Excellent. Thank you so much. And Ilyas, um, interesting, I mean, interesting take off of the OCP group. I see you represent the green ammonia space. And how important is, is green ammonia um, basically in the global agri-food sector? Well, uh, thank you, Kofi. Uh, uh, thank you for having, having me here. It's, uh, it's a great uh, pleasure to be here. Actually, when too many people, when you think of uh, green hydrogen, uh, you don't, I mean, uh, agriculture is not the first thing that comes uh, in mind. And you think of uh, energy, energy sector, but there is clearly a connection and a strong connection between green hydrogen and agriculture. And this is true green ammonia, which is the route to produce nitrogen fertilizers. I mean, agriculture is faced with the challenge. It has to feed a never-growing population, and at the same time, it has to reduce its environmental impact. It's still accountable for a quarter of the global GHG uh, emissions and uh, many other environmental uh, impacts uh, to, be, uh, to be mitigated. So agriculture needs to transform to uh, make its transition to sustainable uh, models, and this is possible through first focusing on soil health. We know that uh, soils can sequester a large portion of what we emit every year, and we at uh, OCP are, are strong advocates of soil health approaches uh, uh, through a balanced use of fertilizers. And the second way is to use green fertilizers. So using, for example, green ammonia in producing uh, nitrogen fertilizers. So uh, ammonia accounts for 2%, ammonia production accounts for 2% of a global GAG. So it's, it's significant. And 80% of that ammonia goes to, to agriculture. So providing uh, green fertilizers is key to a sustainable agriculture. So we at OCP, we have, uh, I would say, a un unique position of being uh, the largest uh, importers of uh, ammonia uh, today with 2 million tons per, uh, per year. And we don't have any legacy uh, gas, natural gas. So we are importing 100% of it. And it happens that we have one of the best renewable resources in the, in, in the world in, 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 uh, in Morocco, especially in the south of the country. So we have made a decision to decarbonize our operations and to produce our own ammonia and we are starting with the first uh, million tons of uh, green ammonia uh, by uh, 2027 and two additional million tons by 2032. Uh, so, more of a follow-up question uh, for you, Amin. I mean, what, what are the challenges of scaling up ammonia uh, production and what is OCP's value proposition? I know Innovex, you're, you're under the OCP group. So yeah. what are the challenges of actually scaling up uh, ammonia production? Yeah. Thank you. 
Well, when we talk about scaling up uh, ammonia production, we effectively talk about scaling up the full value chain. So there are things in the value chain that we know how to do, and there are other things in the value chain that are quite novelty with this uh, type of projects. So definitely in terms of uh, utility scale, power generation from a renewable uh, standpoint, this is something that have already been mastered by the industry. And we, uh, as uh, Ilias mentioned, in Morocco have a unique position for that and we will tap into this renewable resource. But then when we talk about the other technological bricks that we have to integrate to make these projects fly, there are some challenges with those integrations. And I think this is one of the key challenges that uh, we need to overcome is of course to make all those bricks work together uh, seamlessly uh, and make sure that the integration is there. Now, about those individual technologies, um, we need also to make sure that we de-risk those technologies in the projects. Not only we need to de-risk that for the moment where we invest in the project, but we need to think about the future and make these projects future-proof in terms of technology. So there is a lot, for example, happening in terms of electrolysis development from a technological standpoint. And this development is actually good. You know, this is how we're going to drive costs down in the future. But at the moment where we design our solution for the project, we need also to make the space available for uh, future evolutions possible. So I think this is a, a second challenge that is quite key at the moment where we engage into a, such a large venture. And I think it was already mentioned in terms of value chain, the ammonia usage and the market structure in the end is, has always been a kind of chicken and egg dilemma for these projects. I mean, how can we invest when the offtake from a usage standpoint and the support mechanisms for that are not yet fully in place to be able to secure the business case? I think this is the unique position also of the OCP group. Being itself an ammonia consumer, it helps definitely de-risk that part of the, of the business case. Thank you so much. And uh, Celia, back to you on, on the far end. Um, Obviously, from Dr. Peter and uh, Eugene, I mean, we, we mentioned a lot about policy and how policy needs to be introduced right here in Europe to actually drive the cost down uh, for hydrogen production. So on that same context, right now in Europe, the cost for producing or the cost of producing hydrogen is, is relatively higher compared to, to the U.S. market. So how can you convince private sector investors that investing in hydrogen production right here in Europe is the right long-term investment vehicle for them over coal or gas, for example. Yeah, okay. I think I'll reflect on what we were hearing from. I mean, de-risking is the key thing here so that investors will feel comfortable to get involved in the, in the green hydrogen space. And there's a couple of elements that I'd just like to pick out when referencing that. So one is long-term certainty. So we need to make sure that all the policies and frameworks that sit around the space are, um, are robust and forward-looking enough that investors can see, yeah, there's a path here, um, and that gives me the confidence to get involved. And then the other element, which comes back to what um, Eugene was referencing earlier on, is making sure that we can get that link between supply and offtake. So we've got talk here in the UK of having business models for transportation and storage in place by 2025. But we're already getting the projects um, for production coming through and starting to come through now. So we've got already a disconnect in time there. We need to be moving forward on all fronts so that 
suppliers have sight of a range of offtake and vice versa. And then, so you obviously need the, the connection between the two of them. And that will, again, help to, to bring the risk down. Perfect. Thank you. And on that context of the offtake, uh, for you, Eugene, uh, I actually just read recently that um, Johnson uh, Métis just recently committed to, I believe, a three gigawatt hydrogen factory right here in the UK. Can you tell us a little bit about that factory uh, and who is your ultimate end consumer? What sector? Is it transport, power and utility? I'll leave it up. Sure. So, yes, we're investing in our Royston site, which is just south of uh, Cambridge. Actually, at Royston, the, the catalytic converter for the internal combustion engine was actually invented there. So it's a major production site for those. And the site that we're moving into was a building that was used for components for internal combustion engines. So it's a nice switch away from the internal combustion engine to clean technologies. There's about three gigawatts of capacity for making catalyst-coated membranes, which is the critical component at the, at the heart of electrolyzers and fuel cells. That's more capacity than there is for anybody making electrolyzer or fuel cell stacks in the UK. So mainly that's destined for export. All of it, the investment is backed by uh, customer orders. So it's a de-risk project. There, we did get support for the, for the investment from the UK government, very gratefully received. I think uh, you can see that to some extent, it's a pity that it is all for export, but it is an export business, mainly going into Germany for stack manufacturers, firstly for heavy duty, heavy, heavy duty applications for trucking, and that they will then sell those stacks in both Europe and uh, in the United States. Uh, fuel cells are generally ahead of electrolyzers because you can have hydrogen before you have green hydrogen, but eventually they will come up more into balance. To put that investment into context, however, we're also uh, investing or heading towards an investment decision on a, a plant in the United States to service our partner Plug Power, and that will be more 5 gigawatts to, to 10 gigawatts. And it just shows you the, I guess, uh, the Royston plant was first. But the decision around uh, the American investment shows you the, the draw and pull of investment towards the United States, because not directly because of the Inflation Reduction Act, but certainly our customers are incentivized by the Inflation Reduction Act. Therefore, we go where, where that is. And really what we're focused on, I think we think about hydrogen in the UK, but a huge opportunity for the UK is de developing intellectual property and developing high value components that will go into decarbonizing the world. And it's you know, worth remembering that every ton of carbon that is avoided being emitted globally is a benefit to the UK. And so we should also think about inventing that technology and, uh, and exporting it to the world. Thank you so much. And Peter, if we stay on the production side, that Ineos just recently also committed to a flagship Blue 20 megawatt Norwegian green hydrogen project or green hydrogen plant. You tell us more about that plant and um, what, what are your other uh, expansion plans for Europe? Okay, I mean, the, you're right, we're, we're going ahead with a 20 megawatt electrolyzer in Norway. That's our plan. And of course, Norway is renewable energy based. So it's, it's a good location for us and it's on an existing site. And that, that is the first in the pipeline. But we also have uh, plans in place uh, in other parts of Europe, in Germany, connected to green ammonia, for example, hydrogen with green ammonia. We make ammonia. We use ammonia today. Uh, we've got something uh, of interest in Spain. We'd like to do something in the UK. We think Runcorn is perfectly suited to that. That's a big center for us, both uh, production and technology. And of course, North America. 
and, and there may be one or two other areas we're interested in as well. But, um, but we mustn't underestimate, and I think this was mentioned in the previous session, actually, we mustn't underestimate the time required and the investment required to deliver these projects, not just for us, but for anybody in here in this space. And likewise on the carbon capture projects. These take significant time from development, all the permitting, which is in some parts of Europe, here, for example, is pretty slow. All that, going go through that, investing a lot to that stage, and then executing the project, it takes time. And, and so we may have to make sure that our strategy, overarching strategy in the UK, takes account of that time, thinks through the different options, and <clears> provides <throat> the right framework to encourage it, along with the right incentives to encourage it. So, for example, the 2025 business model for storage, pivotal part of the infrastructure, and for other parts of the infrastructure, I'm sorry, the business model there is too late. We have over a terawatt hour of storage, in principle, available in Runcorn as part of the HiNet initiative. You know, we should be pushing, we should be being pushed and challenged to develop that more quickly, not a business model in 2025. But production plans globally, in addition to that, we're also obviously interested in the carbon capture, uh, gas-based hydrogen production areas in the UK and elsewhere. And, uh, and we also have a major project capturing emissions, uh, not capturing emissions, actually, storing emissions in the North Sea in Denmark, which uh, we're a lead partner in that. We've captured CO2 from one of our own plants in Antwerp. It's now underground in storage. We're testing the storage concept in that area. And that, in principle, can store 8 million tons per annum in future. So we're working that side of it as well. And, and that gives us this perspective that there's a lot involved in developing the hydrogen economy. We have to be sure we understand that and take into account all that. And we also have to be sure that we're, we're you know, providing the horses for the courses, if I can use that expression. In other words, hydrogen isn't a panacea for absolutely everything. It will start in some areas and develop from there as the industrialization continues. And, and we have to remember that it is not a primary energy source. It is a secondary energy. It is a transmitter of energy. And so we have to take that into account as well. And in some areas, it's absolutely perfectly suited, and especially for industrial decarbonization and so on. In other areas, maybe less so at this stage. And strategy and support has to take account of that, I think, as well. Thank you. And uh, I've probably answered too long there for you. That's all right. Elias, uh, quite briefly, obviously, coming back to the ammonia space, uh, there, there's clearly a price disparity uh, between producing ammonia from traditional <laughs> fossil source uh, compared to a uh, renewable energy source? I mean, what, can you explain what that disparity is? Well, when it comes to, to price or cost comparison between green and, and, and grade, I guess it depends on the way you look at it. From our perspective, uh, of course, if you take the, the, the price of grey ammonia today and you compare it to the cost of production today, clearly there is, there is a, a gap, right? But uh, these are clearly different dynamics, right? So, grey ammonia was, went from $400 per ton last couple of years to $1,200 and then back to $300. And who would bet on the stabilization of the, 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 the price at a low level in a stable uh, world with the unlimited cheap uh, energy price, right? So, we take it, we take it uh, really today as a hedge of our exposure uh, uh, to uh, grey ammonia prices. We think that today it is achievable to uh, produce 
green ammonia below seven hundred dollars uh, per uh, per ton. So it's it is somehow in an acceptable uh, range. The other way to to look at it is that. Uh, um, uh, I mean, today the, the, the cost of production is, at, as I said, around 700, but is expected to uh, go down to uh, 400 over the next uh, five, six, uh, six years. So it's also uh, to be taken as an entry ticket to be part of the game and to contribute to this price, uh, price reduction and see it as a J-curve uh, journey. So, I mean, in terms of your long-term strategy at the OCP group, would you say your long-term strategy is to produce via the gray ammonia route or to produce via the green ammonia route? No, our, our, our plan is to uh, replace all our gray, uh, gray ammonia sourcing by uh, own uh, produced green ammonia. Perfect. And Amin, back to you. And for the OCP group, how can you increase your, your market presence uh, right here in the UK? Sorry? Yeah, what are your plans to increase your market presence right here in the UK? Well, the first, the first step, as Ilias mentioned, is really to serve the OCP needs. So I think that the first uh, layer of project, and we have a, a program that lasts for, for a few years with increased capacity, but we target really the first phases as a pure placement of the OCP sourcing. And that's a way, as uh, Ilias mentioned, to enter also into this market or of large-scale ammonia production and to make sure that we have projects that can actually scale up um, while embracing technology and making sure that we have actually a foot in the door in that space. Now, you know, there are two, in, uh, in, in trying to roll up this, uh, this strategy, there are two conflicting aspects that we try to reconcile here. The first one is that this is a fast evolving environment, so innovation in terms of technology, business model, partnerships is definitely key. And at the same time, we're talking about really large scale capital implementation. So project execution has to be impeccable. Um, so we need to reconcile between the innovative mindset to be agile and make sure that you know, we, uh, we, we also promote uh, the scale up of, uh, of uh, the technology, the partners, the alliances and the business models, while at the same time securing our project execution. And I think this is what we definitely want to reconcile. Now, about the, uh, you know, the, the future, I think it still also holds onto the development of you know, players that aim at using the ammonia in the future. I think that ammonia is, is definitely seen also as a vector for some a direct usage, others through reconversion into hydrogen. And I think this is also still to be framed, not only from a technology standpoint, but also from a policy support standpoint. And of course, we are looking at that very closely. Yeah? Thank you. And so I'm just going to just ask a few questions from the audience. Uh, an audience member actually said, this is a question for anybody, actually. Is the UK investing in other countries to boost the hydrogen production? Is the UK investing in other countries to boost its hydrogen production? Go ahead, Celine. So we have some discussions with the, gosh, I forgot what they call, but the equivalent of the UK investment bank that looks after overseas opportunities. And their role is all around helping UK companies to get involved in projects overseas. And they're really interested in hydrogen and are looking to scale up projects in that area. So there, is, there are mechanisms in place to facilitate that 
So hopefully that partly answers your question. And I'll remember the name of the organization in a minute. Sure. Does anyone want to add to that? I would say, but there's a few global companies uh, here. Um, well, but certainly Johnson Matthey is investing around the world to enable the hydrogen economy where it makes most sense, either economically or, of course, where the cheap wind and sun is, which is where you know most hydrogen is going to be produced and uh, transported back to these markets. So absolutely, we have an interest in ensuring. It's, there's never been such a classic problem that can only be solved globally. I say if, if the UK decarbonizes and nobody else does, we're still going to be quite warm. I, I think that just, just to add to that, I think, yes, the, I mean, we're a global company. Uh, we've got opportunities in most regions for hydrogen, both uh, electrolysis, green hydrogen, and in some areas, the carbon capture-based hydrogen. And, and we make choices on, you know, there's a finite investment available from us or anyone else, to be quite honest. That investment has to be put behind the projects that make most sense and that can, can ultimately make a return. Hence, it's a very competitive field. And, and hence, countries within, working within that field and with ambition in that field need to ensure they're competitive on the international stage. Sure. And just very, very quickly, Sarah. Yeah, just, just um, reflecting on what uh, Eugene and Peter said, um, across our membership, we've got companies involved in all sorts of locations, supplying all sorts of technology, services, expertise, solutions. Um, and as, as we've heard, you know, it's, it's, this is a global problem with a global set of solutions. So we do a lot of work with overseas counterparts, overseas trade associations, overseas governments, promoting our members and getting them involved in, in projects in those okay. locations. I have a more technical question. So is hydrogen a preferred low carbon option to heating in buildings? And could other options be more suitable in certain situations? So is hydrogen a preferred low carbon option to heating UK buildings? And could other options be more suitable in certain situations? I'll, I'll make, make a start, ahead. shall I? So I think as with all of this conversation, hydrogen isn't a silver bullet. It's part of a blend of solutions. And the same will apply in heat as with other places. So in some situations, heat pumps will absolutely be the answer. Depends on density of housing, age of housing, situation, etc. In other places, yeah, absolutely, you know, there's, there's place for hydrogen, not least in terms of things like making sure that we get the most out of our assets, such as the natural gas grid, which is a fantastic asset that we already have. So we don't have to invest in building something new. And, you know, same applies in transport as well. It's not all about electrification or hydrogen. It'll be a blend of solutions. And I think we need to all be mindful of that, that hydrogen is, is in the mix in our future and the way, way we roll out our low carbon journey out to 2030. And it's an important part, but it, it sits with others. Horses for courses. Come back to your comment, Peter. Yeah, yeah. Go Could I, yeah. I comment yeah. on this? I think, because this is an area that... Um, uh, I usually get quite irate when I'm hearing the debate about because um, probably hydrogen is not the best way to heat houses. I mean, the UK's got very poor housing stock that's not very well insulated that makes heat pumps not very effective. But the key problem that we've got in the UK is joining up supply and demand. And if you look at something like the high net project where supply is being encouraged, the great thing about putting gas into the grid is that you've immediately got somewhere to put it. So it de-risks the project. Yeah. It's not the best place for the hydrogen to end up eventually, but it's where it can end up the second you switch on the project, which de-risks the project, which gives us hydrogen. Then we can encourage the appropriate use of hydrogen in transport, industrial use, glass, the other areas where it's absolutely uh, key. Also giving us a bit of time to catch up on 
you know, insulating the houses so that we can actually heat them with heat pump. I think uh, one final question um, for everybody, basically, uh, is hydrogen the only viable pathway to decarbonization? No. Okay, why is that? Because, I mean, hydrogen is going to be great for some applications, hence our interest and our major investment in it. But, but we shouldn't assume that that's only, the only solution to decarbonization. And whichever agency you look at, which takes overarching data globally from this, would never say it's the, it is the only way of doing it. It is a secondary source. Renewable power has to come along with it. Sometimes you'll want to use that renewable power directly, and, and basically that's the most efficient way if you're pushing it through electric motors. For other applications, you, you need things like hydrogen, which are more fungible, and, and that's, that's important. Sure. So it's horse, it is horses for courses. It's a mix that will be required. We need to be working all of them. And I think from our perspective, that's what we are trying to do. And, and let's not pretend we know where the answer is going to lie eventually. We have notions of what will work and what will not work, but it is very much a do, learn, do industry. We're going to do some stuff. Some of it will work great, and some of it may not work. And then we have to learn and redo. And, and the important thing is we're getting on with it now and not theorizing too much. And final point from Celia? Uh, yeah, um, I referred to my earlier answer in the, in the conversation we've just been having. But just to add to that, I think it's really important that we, within the context of hydrogen is not the solution, it's part of a wider portfolio, we really need to take that whole systems approach to all of this. It's really easy, particularly on the policy side, to think, yeah, I'm doing hydrogen or yeah, I'm doing electrification. And if you look at the system as a whole, the best answer will be taking that step back and looking at how we marry things like reinforcement of the electricity grid with the rollout of um, hydrogen transportation storage. How do we get the best solutions there? And it, a real call to government to make sure that, that they're doing that across the piece. Things like the energy system operator and its evolving role, I think will be really important there. Committee on Climate Change, uh, that needs to trickle down into the practical thinking and planning. Thank you. And one final point yeah, before we end just, the session from Amin. Just adding uh, to what was just said, I think if we had only one solution, we would be in a pretty bad spot. Yes. So uh, happy that we have uh, plenty of solutions. But I think let's focus on the no-brainers. I think hydrogen into ammonia, for example, uh, for agriculture is a no-brainer for decarbonizing that sector. And secondly, I mean, Eugene mentioned that today to decarbonize globally, we need global alliances, collaboration. Hydrogen is a molecule that can do the job. It can create those links, while with renewable power, electricity is a bit more complex. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause for our amazing panelists. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. To register your interest in attending, exhibiting, sponsoring, or speaking at Innovation Zero 2024, please go to www.innovationzero.com. We look forward to meeting you at Olympia in London on the 30th of April and the 1st of May 2024.